Now, we have been going through a series here. I have been going through a series called Admonitions for the Last Days. And since a number of you are new, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10 and get the setting of what we're looking at. This, to me, is one of the most um, relevant passages in Scripture for those of us, in the words of the Apostle Paul, upon whom the ends of the earth have come. We're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. This is what the Apostle Paul begins with. This is what he tells us. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be what? Unaware. He's saying right away, there's something you need to know as a believer, as a fellow believer. I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, just so you understand the setting, he's talking to Israelites and he's talking about their history. And I want you just to take note of that word all. Will you do that? What word are we looking for? All. Moreover, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and what? All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So what Paul tells us here is he's recounting the fact that they all shared the same experience. They went to the same church, they went to the same church schools, they went to the same potlucks together. Are you following what I'm saying? In other words, they all had this commonality. And he says, I don't want you to be aware of it because of this next point. Don't miss the next point. Verse 5. But with what? But with most of them. God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became, what? Our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now notice verse 11 especially. Now all these things happened to them as what? Examples, and they were written for whose admonition? Our admonition, upon whom the ends of the what? Of the ages or world, depending on your translation, have come. So this is what Paul's saying in essence. He's saying for those of us living at the end of time, we're going to see sacred history repeated. We're going to see the devil try to take us out, just like he tried to take the people of God in the Old Testament times out, specifically those of the Exodus. And just so you don't miss this, when he talks about those who came out of Egypt, who all went through the sea, who all passed under the cloud, a conservative estimate, low estimate, of how many people that was, was the Bible just tells us 600,000 men. Doesn't count the women, doesn't count the children. If you count a woman for every man, you're talking about 1,200,000. You count a child for every person, you've got 1,800,000, nearly 2 million people. Quick quiz, pop quiz. I know you're not supposed to have those on Sabbath, but we're going to do it today. Does anybody know how many of the original nearly 2 million made it into the promised land? Two. Now that would be, that ought to cause us a little bit of concern, right? And that's what the apostle's saying. He's saying, even though they all, look, these are not the heathen nations. These aren't the people who don't go to church and do all kinds of craziness. These are the church people. And he says, of the church people, out of nearly two million, two of them made it in. Because of these things. And so he says, I want you to take note of these stumbling blocks for them so we don't fall after the same example. There's no reason only two of us need to make it in. Amen? Now, he lists out several stories, and so what we've been doing in the series is looking at each one of these examples he gives. We looked at the golden calf when it talks about the idolatry. We looked at the lusting after evil things when it talked about them hungering for the food of Egypt or longing for the food of Egypt. Today, we're looking at that little story where he talks about not tempting Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now, a little note here. When you're trying to understand Scripture, and the Scripture writer 
gives an example from the Old Testament and you want to understand it, what's the best thing to do? I've got people read the New Testament like, yeah, I don't get what he's saying. Did you go back and read the story he's referring to? Well, no. <laughs> well, let's do that. Let's go back and see what Paul's drawing out in Numbers. We're going to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Now, I'm going to tell you that there is really a lot of powerful stuff in this story that we obviously don't have time to cover in one sermon. So I'm not going to attempt it, though it may seem like it. But we're going to pick up in Numbers 21 in verse 4. Now our other stories, it's interesting, we've looked at the story of the golden calf, and that was over a chapter long. We had a lot of detail, and then we go into the, the, the longing for the food of Egypt, and again, we went to Numbers chapter 11 for that, but now we've got just a few verses for this one, starting in verse 4, the Bible says, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very what? Discouraged on the way. Some translations say impatient, okay? Just so you understand, they had requested to pass through the land of Edom. That would have given them a straight, short trip to the promised land. But they, refu they were refused, and so they had to actually go back into the dry, hot wilderness around Edom. And that contributed in part to this discouragement that the Bible's telling us about. They became discouraged on the way. Now notice verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against who? Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They're a thankful bunch, aren't they? What is the worthless bread they're talking about? The manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a what? Pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a what? He made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. There's our story that Paul refers to. Now there's a little bit more to it, which I'll touch on, but the serpent on a pole. Now we don't have to do a whole lot here. We go to the New Testament in our scripture reading, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, about this very story. And if you look in John chapter 3, in fact, it's amazing, the most, I think I can easily say this is the most popular verse in all the scripture. John 3.16. Jesus builds the most popular verse in all scripture on the story we're looking at today. If you go back to verse 14, there where our scripture reading was, John 3 verse 14, Jesus says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what? Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So here Jesus puts this, builds this on this story of this bronze serpent. And he says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. Now, that would be very easy for us at this point to say, hey, look, this is pretty straightforward. The people were discouraged, and uh, Moses lifted up the serpent, and Jesus said that that points to the cross. So, basically, don't get discouraged. When you're tempted to get discouraged, look to Jesus on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. And while that may be Certainly in the story, there are some questions that we ought to really be asking. Now, one of the questions that comes to me first when I read the story is, if the, if the serpent on the pole is pointing to Jesus, why is it a bronze serpent instead of a bronze lamb? 
Anybody ever think like a serpent? That's a fitting picture. Where else do we talk about Jesus? No, throughout the rest of Scripture, the serpent, that old serpent, the devil and Satan, right? But God tells him to make a serpent. Well, there's a reason for it. We're going to look into that, but that's a question that comes up. And then the Lord himself was the one that sent the serpents among the people. So there are some pieces of this story. And incidentally, what's more interesting is when Paul goes through the examples... In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, don't be idolaters as some of them were, and don't lust after evil things. He doesn't say, and don't forget to lift up Christ like some of them did. What he says is, don't tempt Christ like some of them did. In other words, what Paul draws out of this whole experience is the danger of falling into what we call tempting Christ. Now, I don't want to go into this. I could go to a whole sermon on that on breaking down and looking at the passages. But let's just look at it this way. When the children of Israel in this story began to complain and murmur, what were they really doing? When they said that they were tired of the loathsome bread, what were they doing? Listen to me carefully. They were saying, if I were in charge, I would be doing a lot better job than you are, God. Anytime a person murmurs and complains, it is a requirement of a complainer to think of himself or herself as better than that which they're complaining about. That's the whole reason you're complaining. You're finding fault because you think you could do better. Didn't mean to upset the little fella. <laughs> so when, you're, when the Israelites, listen, when the Israelites were murmuring and complaining, what they were basically saying is, oh, here we go, we're going through the wilderness again, and now, yada, yada, we could have done better if we just didn't have to follow God in Moses' directions. And in the same, same way, when we find fault with the commandments of God, when we find fault with the statutes of God, when we find faults with the standards of the church and complain about them, what we're really saying is, I know a lot better than God does. Now, the reason it's important for you to know that is that's the exact opposite of what we would call repentance. And nobody can have salvation without repentance. While murmuring requires you to see yourself as superior, Repentance requires you to see yourself as inferior to the one you're repenting to. And so when you're full of pride in your heart, you can never be brought to repentance. And that was the problem with Israel over and over. And the Lord was in this situation trying to lead his people, trying to, in fact, if you go back in the story far enough, one of the main reasons they were complaining was that the Lord had provided water for them miraculously all through their journey, and the water stopped. Now, when you've had water for the whole 40 years or nearly, and it turns off, that should be a clue. The clue is, we don't need the water anymore. We're going into Canaan. So the very thing they should have been rejoicing about, they began complaining about because they thought they knew better than God. Too often, we do the same things. We complain about... God's law, Bible principles, church standards, and exalt ourselves in our hearts. My brother Jim's here today. Uh, he has shared, you might have heard him, I've heard him share this a number of times. When we first became converted, semi-converted, I have to say, it wasn't really converted. When we were on the road to conversion, you'll understand what I mean in a minute. We were in Ohio and we went to this youth meeting, because we were youth then. Some people have asked me, it's my birthday today, Yes. And I'm older. I'm 51 today. I was, this was, this was half of that. I was about 26. And we were, I know it's not exactly half. I know my math. So we were at this youth meeting, and, and I remember that the, 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 as, the, as the young people were asking questions, somebody asked a question about some, some uh, standard. And I don't want to uh, get into all the details of the story. I asked about uh, why... Well, there was a debate, a discussion, I think it was on drinking coffee. Discussion on drinking coffee. 
This place got real quiet, quiet when I said that. I think it's a coincidence. But a young man, one of the youth there, spoke up and he said, well, I don't think we're saved by those things, but I do think that when we take part in those habits that God says are not good, it indicates that our hearts aren't committed to him. You know, I was a coffee drinker. My brother Jim was a coffee drinker, wore jewelry, ate pork, all this. You know, I mean, that's where we were. And he got riled up. And my brother Jim doesn't get riled up a lot, but he got riled up. And he stands up in this meeting. And he pulls out his cross necklace that he had under his shirt. And he said, if you want to tell me that if somebody wears a necklace, which I do, that they don't love Jesus? And if you want to tell me, if you're trying to tell me that if a person drinks coffee, which I do, that they don't love Jesus, I'm telling you, you're wrong. And when Jim tells a story, he always does one of these. <laughs> and I felt, I wasn't the one speaking, but I thought, yeah, let him have it. But the reality is, all he was displaying was arrogance for no other re- if for no other reason than this one. One thing that he didn't do and one thing I didn't do is ever go back and study to see if there was some merit to what that guy said. Now don't miss what I'm going to say. You're allowed to disagree with something in the church, but if you disagree with something, if you disagree with what the pastor says or your teacher says, you better have grounds for it. Don't just be like, hey, I just don't agree with that. Okay. I don't agree that the earth is round. Okay, fine. You're going to disagree with anything, but you ought to go and find your reasons for it. But the fact is, he wasn't willing to go find the reason, and I wasn't willing to go find the reason, because like the children of Israel, we are in that self-sufficient mindset, and a self-sufficient mindset will never yield to the will of Christ. So the Lord has to deal with this Situation Now, you know, one of the things with, that we see with Israel, we t- all went through the cloud and or all passed under the cloud and the sea and all this experience. Because of their culture, because they were the worshipers of God, because they'd been favored by God, the Israelites tended to start to think that God liked them better than others. Almost, not almost, but that they were actually deserving of salvation. The animal sacrifices that they brought, they began to think were a gift that they were giving to God, and God was repaying them favor for what they did. They felt entitled to God's blessings, but I want you to notice this statement on the screen. From Faith and Works, page 36, it says, Nothing but Christ's righteousness can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenant of grace. What the Israelites didn't understand, and what sometimes we don't understand, we're going to get into in a minute, is that the only salvation they had was in Christ. That's so cliche. They weren't deserving of God's grace any more than we are deserving of God's grace. And... I know members here have heard me say this before, and it bears, I think, repeating. Because I hear it a lot. I hear it from young and old. People get discouraged, and they say, Pastor, here's the thing. I mean, I hear about, you know, what I'm doing wrong, and I just, I feel like I'm not good enough to be saved. I'm not going to ask if you've ever said that. Okay? If you miss everything else, get this. Okay? You're not good enough to be saved. If you were good enough to be saved, you wouldn't need to be saved. If you were good enough to be saved, you wouldn't need a Savior. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. If you're a sinner, you can say, hey, that's me. Praise God. He sent a Savior. Don't let your sinfulness drive you away from Jesus. You're the one he came for. I'm the one he came for. 
We're not good enough. And the problem was Israel was thinking they were good enough. And it blocked them from receiving the blessings that God wanted to give. So what did he do? The Bible says he sent fiery serpents. Now that confuses a lot of people. They're like, man, that still seems kind of mean of God. I want you to see something in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now I want you to notice what it really means there when the Bible tells us that God sent the fiery serpents among them. Incidentally, if the children of Israel were complaining about God's leadership, in essence saying, we could do a better job, what would be the best solution for that? Go ahead. Right? You got a better way? Go ahead. They said, God, leave us alone. Watch what happens here in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at verse 15. Now, verse, this is talking about God leading his people in the wilderness, and it's talking in verse 15 about how he led them. In verse 15, it says, God who led you through that great and terrible wilderness, in which were what? Fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the rock, who fed you in the wilderness, manna, etc., etc., etc. So, in other words, in the wilderness, there are a lot of dangers. There was lack of food, there was lack of water, there were scorpions, there were serpents, right? There was heat. Why hadn't the children of Israel seen the serpents before? For the same reasons they didn't see the scorpions. For the same reason they were protected from the heat. For the same reason they were protected from the cold at night. Because God had been leading them. And when they said, look, we could do it better ourselves, God said, I'll give you a little taste of that. And he withdrew his hand and just let the serpents out. Not the scorpions, not the heat. And the children of Israel knew right away that we've sinned against God. Notice the statement here from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. says, Moses faithfully set before the people what? Their great sin. Why? Because they needed to be brought to an understanding of their true condition, which they did not have. It was God's power alone that had preserved them in that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought and where there was no water. God had preserved them. Every day of their travels, they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. Do you know that's still true today? The Lord protects each one of us day by day. It's the goodness of God that had us get out of bed this morning. If with all these tokens, notice, if with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would what? Withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Now, if you have a little bit of that self-importance, if you think you're a little bit deserving of the favor of God, i let you know this. God has fiery serpents that may come into your experience. Talking to young and old, some of you might already have them there, biting at you, because God is trying to help you to see your need of Him. The Israelites needed a wake-up call. The first requirement of salvation is our acknowledgement that we need it. That we are absolutely nothing without Christ. Our sin has to be made evident, and so Moses made the sin of the people evident. Martin Luther made this point. He said, God creates out of nothing, therefore until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Too often we think we're something. You find this pattern through Scripture where God has to bring conviction before He can bring conversion. He presented the law before He presented the sacrificial system. He sent John the Baptist before Jesus came. Right? Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is why Ellen White said that above all her books... If there was one book she wanted to go out more than any other, what was it? Anybody know? What? Great controversy. How many know that? Why not Steps to Christ? Has anybody ever asked that question? I used to puzzle over that. Why not Steps to Christ? Why not Desire of Ages? 
Oh, they weren't written yet. No, they were written yet. Why would she say that? I'm picking on my brother Jim here today. Hey, can we edit out any compliment I give to him on the tape? I don't want him to have a record of this. We were talking about this once, and he made the point that the difference is a difference between great controversy and desire of ages. Desire of ages is written for a person with a spiritual interest, but great controversy creates an interest. There's something that needs to be awakened before you can appreciate eternal things. And so John the Baptist before Jesus and what have you, and so the serpents came in among the people. Now somebody says to me, and this happens a lot, I've had, you talked about things like this, and I've had somebody, Pastor, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that the goodness of God leads to salvation? Aren't we just to present the goodness of God? Well, the Bible doesn't say the goodness of God leads to salvation. The Bible says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I want you to see it in Romans chapter 2. And I want you to get this. this there's something phenomenal in this, this verse that I think this story is hitting at. Romans chapter 2. And I want you to see the context of this, this text. We're going to start in Romans 2 verse 3. Romans 2 verse 3 says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads, what? You to repentance, but in accordance with, what? Your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up wrath. The point that the Bible is making is that what leads to repentance is when you see the goodness of God in the face of your sinfulness. And this is the most amazing and puzzling dichotomy to me in Scripture. Listen, I'm seeing it already with academy students. I'm seeing it already. You guys have come on campus. You're taking me back to my high school days. Not that it doesn't happen with those of us who are older, but man, in high school, let me just tell you, there's life after high school. I remember when I was in high school, I didn't think there was life after high school. I mean, everything had such weight. You know, you'd go to school and you'd have your friends would snub you for a day and it was just like, I'm never going to have friends again in my life. And some of those things weigh, and I'm not belittling that, some of those things weigh so heavily. And I remember in high school, and it's no different today, that you learn how to do the things that will make people like you. And so often, you're never yourself. And I'm not just talking to the kids. Some of us carried into adulthood, and we love Facebook, because I can be a whole different person on Facebook. Because we're afraid that if people see who we really are, they don't want anything to do with us. Boy, I, it's my own pride I'm battling with because I'm bringing up my brother Jim again. We just went over this subject in Emanuel Institute. And Jim, oh, Jim is a good articulator. When I need things articulated, I send it to Jim and he's like, he just has a way of polishing it up. But he gave an illustration I want to share with you because it hit home with me. When I was in high school, as I said, I mean, look, when I was in high school, there's certain music you had to listen to that was cool. If you listened to certain bands or whatever, that was totally uncool. And your friends would be like, ooh, you listen to that? Certain shoes, you wore the right brand. And when I was in high school, it was New Balance shoes. I don't know what the shoes. Is it Pumas today? I don't know what it is today. You had to have a certain kind of shoe. You said, listen to the certain kind of band. You had to have your hair a certain kind of way. When I was in high school, it was the mullet. Ah, yeah, you know what? You're all like, eh, but let me tell you something real plain. 85% of you would have had mullets then, guys, because you had to be cool. And that's what cool was. So you had to go and you, 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 would, you would try to fit in. And Jim gave this illustration. It's like your life is a room. And you're constantly trying to keep people in your room. And you're doing everything you can to get them to stay in your room. So you listen, hey, no, no, I'll put on this music for you. Oh, no, 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 I'll put on these clothes for you. Oh, no, what do you want me to do? And we spend so much time trying to get people to like us sometimes. And then you have those experiences 
where you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and suddenly eh, the uncool buzzer just went off and everybody gives you one of these, huh? Did you just do that? And suddenly you're like, what, what, what? And suddenly you become uncool. I was, when, when I was in high school, I was with a group of friends. I moved around quite a bit. I was, in fact, when I'm, my first year in, in high school, I went from Ohio and moved to Missouri. In Ohio, your senior year, your senior year well, your eighth grade year is your graduating year, and you move on to high school in ninth grade. But not so in Missouri. In ninth grade, you, you move on in tenth grade to high school. And I remember my tenth, oh, my tenth grade year. Um, my ninth grade year was tough. Tenth grade, it was new. It was new school, new people. I didn't know anybody. Some of you... Maybe you're feeling some of that now. I, was with a, I made some friends. I was with a group of friends. We were hanging out, and we were having a discussion, and there was a concert, a rock concert coming up, and one of the guys couldn't go. And he's like, you know, I, just, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. I have this ticket. And I said, hey, I'll go. Evidently, that was the wrong thing to say. That was I was imposing myself or something. I don't know. I know that that one event from there... The next study hall, they were all sitting at another table. And there I was by my lonesome, eating my snack by myself and doing whatever by myself, and that went on for some time. Just because I blew the cool meter, just like that. We work so often as young and old to have people accept us, and then we do that something, and then the people start going out of our room. I'm like, wait, 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 don't go, don't go, no, can stay here. And they go, one after the other, and soon, your room is empty. And then you notice somebody in your room you never saw before. And that somebody is Jesus. And he's not going anywhere, and you're like, hey, didn't you see what I just did? Don't, didn't you just see how uncool I am? And Jesus says, not only did I see that, I know everything about you. I know every shameful thing in your life. But I want to stay right here with you. There's some power in the gospel, not just to know that Jesus died for me, not just to know the love of God, but to know the love of God in the face of Him knowing who I am and still wanting to be with me and still wanting to be with you. And I want to tell you today, if everybody else forsakes your room, Jesus is there. He's the best friend you'll ever have. That's the woman caught in adultery. That's what it is. I mean, it would have been one thing for Jesus to come up and talk to the woman caught in adultery in some normal situation. But to be caught in the most shameful experience. I would dare say every person here today has an experience you hope to God nobody ever finds out about your life. But Jesus knows it in every dark detail, and he's still in your room. You hear what I'm saying? This is the power of understanding. This is what the Lord wanted the people to see. Notice the statement from Acts the Apostles 209. It says, if sinners can be led to give one earnest look at the cross, if they can obtain a full view of the crucified Savior, they will realize two things, the depth of God's compassion and the sinfulness of sin. Those two things are blended. Again, Testimonies to Ministers 264 says, not a soul knows what God is until he sees himself in the light reflected from the cross of Calvary and detests himself as a sinner in the bitterness of his soul. When his soul cries out in great need for a sin-pardoning Savior, what? Then God is revealed. When you're at your low, low, all-time low, and you're like, okay, now God, you don't want anything to do with me. He says, no, now I want everything to do with you. Then God is revealed as gracious, full of compassion, and forgiveness, and love, long-suffering, and patience. This is why Ellen White makes the statement, both the law and the gospel are blended in no discourse. Are they to be divorced? You can't compartmentalize them. There's this strange dichotomy, as I said, where on the one hand, you're seeing your sinfulness, and on the other hand, you're seeing the love of God in spite of it. Well, when those serpents were sent out among the people, it didn't take them long to figure out Something was wrong. While they could have denied their own sinfulness, they couldn't deny the fiery venom surging through their veins and its painful effects. And so they went right to Moses and said, Moses pleaded with the Lord for us, please, go intercede. 
And the Lord said, Moses, I want you to take a serpent and put it up on that pole. Why did he take a serpent? Like I asked earlier, not a lamb. Because it was the serpent that was biting them. And he wanted to put up on the cross the example of the thing that was killing the people. See, they thought, like we do today, they want to, we complain because we, th- we think our lives are bad because it was a, something about our boss or our dead-end job or our algebra teacher or the boyfriend or girlfriend I do have or the boyfriend or girlfriend I don't have or all these circumstances. That's not where our problems come from. Our problems come from the sin in our hearts, the venom of the serpent that's in our veins. And the only solution to that is not getting another girlfriend or boyfriend or more money or a better job or a new, new house. Or... The only solution for that is in Christ Jesus and His righteousness. That alone can meet the need. We're studying Galatians in the Sabbath school quarterly. The Bible says in Galatians 3.13, I'm not going to look it up, it says Christ redeemed us from the curse being made what? A curse for us. He became sin for us on that cross. He took sin to the cross and buried it and put it away. Friends, it's only on the cross. Do you understand that there's only been one place in all the entirety of the universe, in all the entirety of history, that sin has ever met its penalty, and that's in the cross of Calvary. There's only one place that really helps us to see what sin has actually cost When I sin in my life, I don't see the full cost of it. That's why we keep on in it. If we could only realize the cost of every sin was the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. That is the cost of sin. And the Lord said, Moses, you tell the people to look. Just look. If they'll look at that serpent on the, craw- on, the, on the pole that Moses lifted up, they look at the serpent, they'll be healed. Just look and live. This was a lesson for the Israelites because up to this point, if they wanted the forgiveness of God, they would bring animal sacrifices. And the thing about the animal sacrifice is they'd bring that and then they would pat themselves on the back for doing this good deed. And so God took it entirely out of their hands and said, there's absolutely nothing you can do in this. The provision is made entirely by me. All you can do is respond. They must entirely depend on the power of God and His mercy or perish. But there was a response. And let me just make this point. It's no different for us today. Salvation is not a calculus equation. You look and you live. God's given his son Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus has brought a newness of life. You look to him and believe that through him you have life. And you have life. You look and you live. But what does it mean today, practically, to look to Jesus? I mean, what do I do? Look at a picture? Listen to me carefully. The look that they gave was their response of faith to God's gift. It was their choice it was an act of faith. It was exercising their will on the side of God's will. But listen to me carefully. The look did not save them. And don't miss what I'm about to say. The look did not save them. It was Christ who saved them through the look. Now, I want to make an application on that in a minute. It's interesting. This is called the the, uh, star of life. And in the middle is something they call the rod of Asclepius. They use it in the medical profession. This goes on ENT vehicles and paramedics and what have you. And that rod of Asclepius, that comes from the Greeks around 300 B.C. Where do you think they got it all from? The sign of healing is not there. It's in Jesus Christ. The lifting up of the brazen serpent was to teach Israel an important lesson. They could not save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison in their wounds. Neither can we save ourselves. God alone was able to heal them. Yet they were what? 
required to show their faith in the provision which he made. How did they show their faith? They had to look in order to live. Look, some folks were sitting in their tent somewhere and somebody said, hey, you can go look at the serpent on a pole. You've got that fiery venom in your veins. You're feeling your life ebbing away and you're going to take what energy you have left and crawl out and make your way over to look at some brass serpent? You would if you had faith. That was their response to faith. They must look in order to live. Ellen White tells us this in Steps to Christ, page 47. Many will be lost while, notice, hoping and desiring to be Christians. Why? They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. They do not now what? Choose to be Christians. We often use cliche terms like focusing on Christ and keeping our eyes on Christ. What does it mean? Listen to me carefully. It simply means putting Jesus first in your choices. That's what it means. We choose to spend time in devotions. And young people don't miss this. I spoke on this at our, at our, our iShare weekend a little bit. And this isn't just young people, but I hear a lot from young people. Pastor, I've tried with the devotion thing and it's not working for me. Like, what does that mean, it's not working for you? I got up early this last week and I'm not feeling any different. Your Christianity is not based on how you feel. We walk by faith and not by sight. Christianity is a choice you make. The healing comes when you make the choice. Not because you feel it, because God promised it. So your devotional life, that's a choice you make. Looking and living for you and me is choosing to spend that time in devotions. And I'm going to tell you, the devil's going to try to get you to choose something different. We choose to spend time in devotions. We choose to go to Sabbath school and church. We choose to attend Unlock Revelation. Amen, Pastor Howard. But don't miss this. It is not our devotions that save us. It's Jesus Christ alone who saves us through our choice to have devotions. It's not our going to church that saves us. We haven't earned anything. But Jesus will save us through the provision he's given to allow us to come to church. It's not the things that we're doing in our Christian life, but those are choices we are making to put ourselves in the area of blessing. And God will not come short of blessing us when through our choices we look and live. You know, the Bible doesn't say we're saved by faith. Are you aware of that? It says we're saved by grace through faith. Faith has to lay hold on the grace of God, but if faith doesn't lay hold on the grace of God, in other words, I'm just saying, faith doesn't save you, Jesus saves through your faith. At the end of the day, it's always Jesus who is the saving power. And to have that saving power, you look and live. And for you today to look and live, looking is you choosing to put Jesus first in your life. I'm going to finish with this statement, the dead and dying were all around them those who were bitten. And they knew that without divine aid, their own fate was certain, but they continued to lament their wounds, their pains, their sure death. Sometimes Jesus is right within our midst. We only have to choose him, but we say, oh, my life is just such a mess. Don't sit and lament your wounds. Come to Jesus. They sat around until their strength was gone and their eyes were glazed when they might have had instant healing. And you could have healing. Today, through Jesus, if we are conscious of our needs, we should not devote all our powers to mourning over them. There's a point where we need to recognize our sinfulness, but then don't just dwell on it. Look to Jesus who can save from sinfulness. Don't devote all your powers to mourning over your weaknesses. While we realize our helpless condition without Christ, we are not to yield to discouragement, but rely upon the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Look and live. Jesus has pledged his word. He will save who? He will save all who come unto him. Through millions, or though millions rather, who need to be healed will reject his offered mercy. Not what? Not one who trusts his merits will be left to perish. You know, it's interesting. In that serpent on the pole, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he said, you know, all who, as Moses was lifted up in the, uh, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the son of man be lifted up. He goes on to say something like this. He says, he who does not believe, he says, the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that those who, uh, uh, that people would believe. And then he says, he who 
believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. In other words, we already got the serpent's venom coursing through our veins. And there's only one solution, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is asking us, inviting us to look and live. How many of you want to look and live? How many of you, by choosing to put Christ first, want to look and live? If that's your desire, I want you to stand with me today. Amen. Now, while we're standing today, I want to make a special appeal. I want to make appeal, first of all, to our students today. And then I'm going to broaden it out. Some of you students came here to GLA this year knowing, even as you were coming, that there were spiritual decisions you needed to make this year. Maybe you've thought about it over the summer. Maybe it's just been this first week of school, but you have been thinking, the Lord has been bringing to your mind that this year is going to be different. This year, I need to commit my life to Jesus. There are those of you who have not been baptized, and you've been thinking about making that commitment in baptism. And the Spirit of God has been drawing you to himself and wooing you and encouraging you to make that commitment. That's looking and living for you. Today, looking and living is choosing to be baptized and to follow Jesus and give your life to him. And I want to invite those students today who have been thinking about, who the Holy Spirit has been prompting with the idea of baptism, I want to invite you, if you have been thinking about getting baptized, today you want to say, I want to begin studies for baptism. I want to invite you to come forward today. I want to pray with you. I'm going to have Pastor Daniel and Pastor Taylor come forward and pray with you today. And we want to get you started in preparing for your baptism. Today the serpent is on the pole for you, just like it was for Israel. Today when Moses warned us, or when Paul warned us, that nearly two million perished in the wilderness, so two million could perish today, or you could look and live. Is there a young person today who wants to make the decision to be baptized? I'm going to invite you to come forward. Don't worry about lunch. I already told Warren it's going to be late. God bless you, young lady. Is there somebody else? Is there somebody else who wants to recognize that Jesus is in your room? And you want to commit your life to the one who's always been there for you. Somebody else who wants to get baptized today. You've wanted to make this commitment. The Lord has been working on you to make this commitment. And today is an opportunity for you. I want to invite you to come forward. Now let me include in that, maybe you've been baptized. But it's rebaptism. You were baptized, yeah, when you were eight or nine. And you're thinking, you know, I really need to make this commitment real. I need to make it mine. And you've been thinking about it. And I didn't know you were thinking about it, but the Lord knew you were thinking about it and prompted me today to give you this invitation. Now, what do you want to say to him today? The Lord Jesus is inviting you to come and commit your life to him in baptism or rebaptism. Is there another who wants to make that decision? God bless you. And God bless you. To somebody else. Young people, I want to tell you what's happening right now. Some of you are looking around your room and trying to think about keeping other people in it. And what it might look like. I'm going to tell you, if they're going to leave your room because you come forward to commit your life to Jesus, better they leave now than later. Jesus Christ is giving you the opportunity of eternity with him. And he's the best friend you'll ever have. God bless you today. As the students are coming forward, perhaps there's one of us who's a little older, yet who needs to make the same decision. The Spirit of God has been talking and, and, and moving on your heart and striving with you. Perhaps to be baptized. Perhaps to be rebaptized. The Spirit is inviting you today to look and live. If you want to make that decision, I invite you to come forward with those of us standing up here today. Is there somebody else who needs to make this decision today? God bless you. I just want to say hallelujah to the people who are responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit today. And we want to lift one, and up, one another up in prayer, don't we? Every one of us here. We don't want the devil to have a place on this campus. 
We want to see the Lord Jesus lifted up so all can continue to look and live. Is there one more today that needs to make that decision? I want to make one last appeal. Is there one more today who needs to come forward? The Spirit of God is striving with you and you know it's a decision you need to make. God bless you today. And God bless you. Praise Jesus. He is so good to us. We don't deserve it. And it doesn't matter to him. He loves us anyway with an everlasting love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Oh, Father. Father, you've spoken through clay today. I feel my words are so feeble to try to communicate what it is that you want to communicate. But Lord, I trust even now for your spirit to be communicating to hearts and minds. And Lord, I praise your name for these who have come forward today to give their lives fully to you. Lord, may they find the joy, the fullness of joy in knowing that despite where they've gone, despite their deepest, darkest sins in their life, they have a loving Savior who receives them fully. And Lord, as they prepare for their baptism, I pray that not only will their lives be enriched, but they will be a means of blessing others. Father, thank you today for your love and mercy toward us. May we always choose to put Jesus first, to look and to live ask and pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.